At Journey Beyond Divorce, we understand that navigating through the emotional tsunami of separation and divorce is one of the hardest journeys you'll take. And we know that once the initial fear and pain begins to pass, a whole new storm of confusion, uncertainty, and self-doubt can surface. Journey Beyond Divorce can help you identify and clarify where you're feeling stuck and what steps you need to move forward, even if they're just baby steps. We guide you with practical, tangible support that you can start implementing right away. Our team of experienced divorce coaches is ready to help you. Listen through the show because we have a gift just for you. It'll help you navigate your divorce with more calm and confidence. You're listening to the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast with Karen McMahon. We invite you into a journey of healing and personal transformation that will radically change your divorce experience. Heal your heart while refining your character and enable you to be effective and feel empowered as you navigate the practical and emotional challenges of divorce. If you do get some type of maintenance or alimony, whatever we want to call it, that's your time to get back on your feet. It's not your time to keep your old lifestyle and be supported doing it because the longer you wait, the older you get, the more challenging it is to get the kind of work you think you want. And you've kind of wasted all of that time. This is your time to wrap around your future. Welcome to the High Net Worth Divorce Playbook, where we introduce you to the experts who can inform, guide, and support you through the unique complexities of your divorce. Throughout this series, you will hear from the best of the best on topics including the art of negotiating, how to divide and distribute complex assets, and what you need to know about splitting pensions what your attorney doesn't know, and how that can hurt you, how to find hidden assets, and the key to protecting you and your family's financial future. Welcome back. Today's episode is entitled, What's an Employability Expert and Do I Need One? Perhaps like me, you've never heard of an employability expert. And when I began designing this series, the topic of employability and vocational analysis wasn't even on my radar. The more I spoke with our experts, the more I realized how vital this piece is to the overall success of your divorce, whether you're the primary earner or the other spouse. Today's expert takes us through the function of an employability expert, how to determine if you need one, what they do, and the value that they bring to the settlement negotiations, as well as to the spouse who needs to re-enter the workforce. This conversation is overflowing with valuable insights, information, and advice. Today's guest is Rona Wexler, who coins herself the employability expert. Today's expert is Rona Wexler. She's the employability expert. She provides expert witness services on earning capacity and employability and offers litigation support to family law attorneys nationwide with a strong focus in New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Florida. Rona's unique expertise allows her to quickly grasp the key issues in the employability assessment and support her findings with solid research, a sound process, and keen understanding of the key issues while offering valuable insights during her consultation that have saved her clients time and expense. This is a great conversation. I'm very excited to have you here. Welcome, Rona. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So Rona, when we we began talking, I didn't know what an employability expert was. So can you start by sharing that with our listeners? Of course. So we're known as employability, someone like me is known as an employability or a vocational expert. And when questions arise in a particular case, very much so in family law, about what a person can do for employment, how they return to work, are they underemployed, they just lost a job, they can't seem to find another, 
Um, their earnings have really dropped. Maybe not. Maybe they think they can go back at the same or the other spouse thinks they should be able to go back to work earning the same money that they earned 15 years ago or more. Then their attorney will reach out to someone like me. And we have a process of understanding what that person's capabilities could be or are, what they could earn, what the labor market is like, the demand, what it takes to get back to work, maybe different education, depending on their age and interests. And then we also look at the diligence of the job search. If someone says they really tried, and oftentimes they have, and sometimes not so much. And then we put that together in a report, and hopefully it helps people answer those questions and move closer to settlement. Great. So we want to learn a little bit more about all those details today. And one of the things that um, I had mentioned to you is our listeners are going to fall on both sides of the fence, right? So some of them are going to be the high, the, the high earner and others are going to be the person who either earns less or who's been the stay-at-home parent. And you had told me that, um, that you have stories for everything. And I was wondering if we could kick off uh, this conversation with you, just sharing a, an earnest story and a stay-at-home parent story so that we can set the stage for our listeners. Of course. So one story I have is about uh, a man in his late 50s, mid to late 50s, who had always spent his career in academia, primarily with one small private college. And the world of private institutions, private colleges has shrunk even before COVID and all the dangers and, and, and financial issues were, you know, populating that, that group for some time. He was also in an area that wasn't in high demand. You know, I think it was something like philosophy, maybe history. And he lost his job and it was a good paying job. And he made every effort he could to look for something different. But the world had changed since he started working in academia. Before, we had up to 70% of faculty were full-time and on a tenure track. And now that's completely reversed. It's more like 30% could be in that type of role, more permanent, better paying, benefits. And the rest are faculty that are what we call adjunct. So people have to, you know, cobble together different assignments with different nearby colleges, earning a fraction of what they did before. His wife had uh, indicated that he was underemployed and she was pretty upset about it. She was a working person herself. Their children were grown. And my job was to do a thorough research and see what was going on in that world, which I kind of knew about already, and also look at his job hunting efforts see what he did, was it diligent enough, and what else he could be doing. By the time I was working with him, it was probably, he was getting close to 60. In addition, he did have some emotional issues that made his job search and his presentation, even in a part-time faculty interview, more challenging. And so that was the report that I issued. Basically, that he had done the best he could what he was earning or hoping to earn. He wasn't even earning that money yet. He was desperately trying to earn, you know, half of what he could get uh, had been paid was legitimate. And my understanding is from the attorney that they did eventually successfully settle that case. And, and, and that last piece is the key, right? It's like, what is legitimate? What is reasonable? What is, uh, what is, what, what falls within a reasonable expectation? So I'm glad you mentioned reasonable expectation because a lot of what I do is helping the parties manage their expectations. Oftentimes I am the outside voice. Whatever their attorney has told them, there's a lot of head shaking, refusal to believe. It's too early for me to settle for that. And oftentimes I'm brought in, even on a consulting basis, would you please talk to my client? So I've done that before. Uh, in fact, I did this recent, a few years ago with an occupational therapist who had been out of the workforce for some time. 
Now, we know that occupational therapy is a pretty good occupation, particularly for parents who are staying at home. On the other hand, there's a lot of ins and outs on that. If they're working with an agency, they're not getting paid as much. The work can be erratic. There's travel time involved, you know, by car or public transit. Um, one of the better jobs is being with the public school system. And because of the legislation that entitles students to all these different services, they frequently do work there, either half-time, three-quarter, or full-time. Three-quarter and full-time in New York City would get benefits, too, very good benefits. So um, this woman was, I talked to her for some time. She told me what she was doing. I looked up and did my research about what she should be able to get paid and where she would get that work. She was applying to a whole host of school systems in the hope of being employed. And she simply could not get her husband and they didn't have that much money. So her husband was watching money, you know, hemorrhaging out the door and he's worried that she's not trying hard enough. So I agreed to speak to him happily. I explained why I thought she was doing the right thing that I couldn't really ask her to do anymore. She was very conscientious and she truly wanted to return to work, not only because of the money, but because she really wanted to work. Right. And apparently that broke the log jam because they settled soon thereafter. Um, he needed to hear from an outside individual with no skin in the game that in my professional opinion, yeah, she's okay. And, and his, and, it's and his expect, yeah, yeah, and his expectations were not realistic in that particular. Now, on the other hand, um, what I find is if you have the what they call the moneyed spouse, the higher earning spouse, who is the wife, and the other partner who is male, a husband perhaps, okay, if they lose their job and they're having trouble getting another. And maybe they were an equal or better earner, but the wife has done pretty well for herself. Suddenly, she's expected to pay support, pendente lite, or permanent support. The emotional response to that, because we still have gender biases one way or the other, is far and away much greater than if that were the roles were reversed. And there are a lot of factors that get considered in that. Sometimes it's an older spouse in an industry that is particularly challenged about hiring older employees, somewhere where they feel there's just not enough years left in that individual to really get the kind of money they were getting before. Sometimes that individual is in a, is in a uh, position such as trading, you know, stocks and trades. Well, that is all going electronic and algorithmically now. And that means that the role that this person has had for 20, 25, 30 years is obsolete. And now what? So depending on their age, they may hopefully reposition themselves, use a lot of that experience to go into something else. But as they get older, you know, that can be more difficult, not only from a mindset, but really facing the, the uh, issue about age bias which is there, it's not insurmountable, but it is present and becomes more difficult. So are you, am I understanding you to say that when the, the woman is the um, higher earner, that there's a different or a more powerful emotional reaction to having to um, support her spouse than if the man is the higher earner? without question. And if you talk to any matrimonial attorney, they will tell you the same. Yes, it's very strong. And the, the truth is, if, if, if you're dealing with apples to apples, like a situation um, with either gender being the moneyed spouse, if it's pretty similar, one would, one would argue, why, why is it any different? And what is your, uh, just because you brought it up, I'm so curious. What do you think that's about? Uh, could you kind of rephrase the question? Well, why do you think, um, do you think in general there's a bias that if the woman's the one making the money, she shouldn't have to support her husband? Got it. So, Many women come from a background 
even if it's implicit and not explicit, thinking that they're going to take care of their own if they're career driven, they want to be, they get to that level of achievement, it never occurs to them that they will also have to support a spouse. It's their journey. Yes, they may be in partnership with their their husband, their male spouse, when I say partnership, a marriage partnership, but it never occurs to them that they would have to take on that level of responsibility, that the roles would be reversed, because we still have this, I guess, historical understanding that you're a man and you're physically capable and you've had the benefits of being able to be well-employed. And now I suddenly am responsible for you when I've worked so hard to get to where I am without any, nearly the obstacles that, you know, with so many of the obstacles that you would not have encountered. So there's a piece of that and growing resentment about it. Okay. Duly noted. Um, And very interesting. Uh, You had given a story on the the earner side, um, the stay at home spouse. Can you just, just, uh, we're about to dive into the details, but, mm-hmm. um, what does that look like? The, and we're, de- you know, we're talking, it's a high net worth, uh, playbook series. So we're, we're, we're not talking about people who are tight on money in that case where you have, um, the stay at home spouse has been yes. out of work for a while. So, um, a large, proportion of my work is with high net worth individuals, okay? That means that these are likely to be fairly educated people with uh, at least a baccalaureate degree, not always, but at least more likely also an advanced degree or a professional degree, you know? Um, So it's a very common story for me to uh, evaluate a one-time lawyer who left that practice. More than likely, they worked for a big, somewhat demanding firm, especially the big ones, very demanding. And they may have attempted to go back after their first child, but by the time the second one came along, that kind of work, not being able to sustain a partner track, they exit. And if the father or husband is making, or the other partner is making good money, I'm told that there was a mutual decision that they could it'd be good for the children to stay home and um, to think about returning later on. Now, the reason that woman may have left laws because she also discovered she really did not like it. Okay. And so has very little interest in returning. However, now that we're talking maintenance or alimony, now the husband is saying, but she has that degree. And she is capable of doing something with it. And I think she should do so, or at least she can earn that money. And that should be considered in my obligations, my financial obligations. And so um, what I'll do then is take a look at the kind of law they practiced, what, um, if anything, they would envision themselves doing. Some areas of law are very, uh, are weak practice. Others are very better What might they want to go into next? You know, it's not uncommon for me to see a lawyer involved in in a divorce who has retained the license and kept it in retirement status, which means all they have to do is get continuing legal education credits to reinstate. And oftentimes they'll think about going into family law because of their experience. And sometimes, oftentimes they have some very good other knowledge about finance about uh, deal-making, about looking um, under the rug, so to speak, for other kinds of assets. They can be very effective. Um, And it's rewarding to them to think that they can help somebody get through that. So we'll talk about what that path would be. Now, it's not unusual for that person to say, I don't want to do that anymore. Okay, what else are you thinking about? What, what, What was going, can it earn comparable amounts of money? What is that going to take? And if it doesn't, I still have to commit to writing a report that says, you are capable of doing this. No one says you have to. The choice is yours. But you may, the courts may look at it and say, but that is something you can do. And, you know, talk about role reversal. If it were the man on the other side, you know, and um, and 
could do this work, wouldn't you expect that spouse to perform that work even if they didn't want to? Right. It's kind of a double-edged sword. Right, know. right. No, I really appreciate that. It's really interesting how that can cut both ways. Um, so let's talk about this a little bit. Uh, so you have you, you have a couple, they're, they're going for divorce. Um, the issue of employability um, comes up. Where, where do you start? Well, the first thing I do is speak to the attorney and they give me an outline about what the case is, what the questions are. I just had one five minutes ago and I let them know that the person is in their early 60s and, had, and got let go about a year and a half ago and took a much lower paying job in an area that's become kind of obsolete my question to her was, I'm not sure I'm a good person to do the evaluation. I don't know if I can come up with what your client would hope to would hope for because it's it's not pretty, okay? But that's that's one thing. So I'll talk to the lawyer, we'll get an outline of the case, what they think is needed, what I think the question, then I ask a lot of questions. The age, the age of the children, what's the background, and where what are the expectations? So, so I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you tend to be hired by um, the underemployed spouse or the, the primary earning spouse? Or, oh, it's both. Or it, it's both. It's across the board. It's across the board. You okay. So, I mean, the under-earning spouse will hire me because my husband, I hate to use these, or my, my money wife, my higher earning wife is underemployed. As soon as this divorce started, somehow he lost his job or she lost his job and it's never been the same. And now he took this lower paying job and it's far below what he did before. And he's hiding something. And and I would imagine sometimes that's true and mm-hmm. sometimes that's not. And so that's one of the things you're there to find out. That is absolutely right. And the flip side of it is... Um, I'm, I make all of this money. I'm the high earning spouse, and um, my my spouse uh, either, for whatever reason, didn't work, and I believe he or she can, mm-hmm. and that sh- what they're capable of um, should be calculated into what I have to pay out in terms of uh, spouse support. Big one. That's Beautiful. the big one. So that's that's the landscape, just for our listeners. Mm-hmm. That's the landscape that we're we're working on here is whichever side of the fence you're on, um, if the issue of employability and the issue of spousal support um, is on the table because of that, then someone like Rona is your person to help assess and evaluate. Now what we're going to do, Ron, is we're going to just dive into what that looks like. So the first thing is you're hired by the attorney, not not the husband or wife. Uh, you ask your questions. And if you could take us through, I think the best thing for our listeners to is for us to walk through what that process looks like. Sure. So the reason the, I'm retained by the attorney is so that privilege can be maintained. Communication, as much as possible, can be maintained. Nothing that goes back and forth between any party and me is privileged. So I try to work through the retaining attorney to to the, as much as possible, aside from setting appointments and, you know, administrative types of things. So um, they sign a retainer agreement with me against which I bill my hours. And sometimes I do a flat rate, depending on the case. Um, After doing this for almost 20 years, I can kind of tell what are the critical components and how complex it's going to be. But sometimes that is not easy to predict. It depends. And then I have a questionnaire that I send out. And if, let's say, um, the spouse that's retaining me believes that the other spouse can do better for work, okay? So I send out two questionnaires. They're almost identical. One is to that spouse. Tell me about your spouse. Answers questions about what he or she thinks the spouse has in the background and talents and all those other kinds of things. Same questionnaire goes to the opposing counsel to be delivered to the other party. 
Um, I really use the one for the retaining spouse just to get some background, but really who I have to really listen to is the person I'm evaluating. Um, Non-surprisingly, a lot of times it's misinformation on the part of the other spouse. Um, And then uh, we arrange for an interview. I ask for an interview. I will always ask for the interview and a vocational interview at times. I won't get that opportunity. They'll refuse. We have to go on record that I asked so that if in fact it goes to trial and I get the, but you didn't talk to my client, you didn't have it, you know, et cetera. I can say, yes, but we made the request not just once, but twice, you know, and uh, then the onus is on that party to defend themselves. Why would someone refuse? Um, Good question. I always wonder about that. I think sometimes they are just suspicious of the process. Sometimes they feel that it's just one more thing that the other spouse is hammering them about and they don't want to. Sometimes it's because they and the attorney may have come to an agreement about what their position is about um, um, maintenance or implied imputed, what they call imputed income. And they think this is not necessary. They feel strongly about their position. And so they just won't. So how do you go about doing your job if you can't talk to the person who you're evaluating? Well, there's a few things. I get the background from the different people. Sometimes one of the spouses has an older resume or not so old a resume that we can reference. I'll look at a LinkedIn profile if it was there. We might do a little bit on social media. But the other thing I'll do is I'll talk to the attorney about creating questions for the deposition, questions that I know I need answers to. They frequently already have an idea, but because I know so much more depth, I have so much more depth about all these different professions and occupations, they will sometimes concentrate on areas that are superfluous, and I know I need more information on something else. So we'll work on that together. And then they'll produce the deposition. I get the depo transcript. And I start going through that. I look for social security earning statements, which they're supposed to provide anyhow, if requested, um, things of that nature. And that gives me some good background. Remember, testimony in a deposition is, is you're, not suppo- it's, it's, you're not supposed to perjure yourself. So it's supposed to be true testimony. In an interview, they may not feel that quite the same. Although my interviews are fairly soft, you know, one of the most frequent comments I get from the other side is, you know, this wasn't bad. I thought it was going to be (laughs) different. I think they thought it was going to be like a deposition, you know, where you're getting drilled. I'm not looking to do that. I just want to really understand where you're coming from, what you did. I treat it as though I were interviewing a potential hire. I was an executive recruiter. So I look for information as though I were a recruiter and trying to get a full picture. Yeah. And I would imagine that your disarming way is, is very valuable for the people who hire you because you're not like interrogating. No, I'm not interrogating. It's much more of a conversation and uh, with a specific agenda. And they know it in advance because my questionnaire tells them about a lot of what we're going to cover. So let's get into that. Like, what are the factors that you've mentioned a number of them, but let's just run through the factors that you're looking at. Um, So um, one is one of the first things you have to look at is the person's age and um, their education and how they applied that education. And then to look at their full work history, what exactly they did, how they went from one job to another, how they found it. That can be revealing um, how did their responsibilities and tasks change? Um, did they build a career path? How did that happen? Um, one of my favorite questions is, so in this job, what was your most important learning that you took with you? Okay. That's something I would ask in an interview. And it sometimes can elicit some interesting information. And then um, I'll ask about their involvement in networking, uh, both currently and before. Uh, how they would use it, uh, have they consulted with um, a career advisor, a job search advisor in the past? Uh, were they considering it at this point? Very often during a divorce, they have not. Um, 
And we'll go through all of that employment experience, the voluntary, volunteer experience, leadership roles that were unpaid, that would have been helpful to understand um, organizational skills. Uh, you know, we have a lot of women and men who come from some pretty heavy duty backgrounds. And a lot of them take that energy and pour it into some type of philanthropic activity or endeavor or office, you know, work on the school board, et cetera. And it's pretty, pretty heavy stuff. And so I want to know that too. Um, we'll look at the person's, if there are any medical conditions, there could be a limitation. We want to know that. Uh, very often they will bring up their household, their, more their childcare responsibilities. Sometimes there are special needs children involved. And that requires some additional consideration that really is for the attorneys and the parties to work out, but I need to be aware of that. And maybe one of the reasons they might not uh, commute to a big city because of the time lost. Um, so we'll take all of that together and then I analyze that and understand what are their strengths, their professional or vocational strengths, what I call vocational assets their education, the skills they exercised, um, communication, leadership, analytical, financial, all of those different things. And then I will also consider what are the concerns, things like um, time out of the workforce in particular, time out of what type of workforce. So 10 years out as, or six or seven years out as a teacher, or speech pathologist is very different than being six years unemployed in financial services, such as investment banking and things of that nature. Oh, they, wow. can't, they can't even be compared. Okay. Even six years out as an attorney does not necessarily mean you'll be going back full time into a big firm. You may not even want to do that, but that doesn't mean there are many kinds of opportunities that former lawyers did and can continue to do practicing law just in different ways. Um, so I take all of that into consideration, including the medical. I consider the um, age of the individual. It's very different looking at someone who's in their early 60s um, and by the way, the courts will impute some income to them sometimes, for sure, versus someone who's in, I've been getting more younger couples that I have had to work with. And by the way, sometimes I'm often appointed as a neutral to either evaluate one or both of the parties. Okay. So that's, um, that's really nice when a judge asks me to do that. It shows a lot of faith. Uh, and that's been interesting as well. So that's, what I do, I have to look at all of those factors. I have to look at the labor market. Where do they live? Okay. What's the labor conditions like there? Is employment high? Is it a little bit more rural-ish so that it's going to be harder to um, find a job comparable to their earning capacity, as we should put it? Like if I'm talking to somebody upstate New York, like I don't know, above Albany, Schenectady, Utica, some other places where there's been difficulties in finding employment. There's just not as many available. They're tied to just one or two major employers and then some that surround them. I have to consider that too. So we do a labor market research. We'll look at job postings that are available. On occasion, we will also perhaps talk to potential employers. I have a list of recruiters I talk to to say, what do you think? How would this person get back in? And I'm often surprised, you know, positively and negatively about what the employment outlook might be. I wrap that up into a report um, indicating all of what I just told you, summarizing it. And then if I'm talking about the job search, if there are questions about is somebody really looking for work or are they just saying there's simply no jobs for someone like me for all right. the reasons I've described, then I take a look at what are the records they have. How do they document it? Um, do they keep a calendar or a diary that indicates everything? Uh, let me be very clear. If somebody is really committed to looking for work, then they should have and are expected to have some type of records, a tracking document, a spreadsheet, a Word document that says, here is who I spoke with on this date. This is what transpired. Nothing going on. Call them back in two months. Okay. Well, if they don't, you can kind of say, well, that might be one of the reasons. 
Gab and gotten like you have to be organized, that, right? That is that is absolutely <laughs> correct. And 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 um, it's funny because this young man called me a number of years ago. He was young, and he had just lost his job, and he was making a decent living. Um, and he wanted to go to court right away to get a downward modification in his support. And I knew that would never fly. Okay, he just lost his job. And I, I told him so. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, if you're going to do that, first of all, the courts want to expect a bunch of other things, which I won't discuss here. But in addition, you will need to keep records about your job search. And this is what I suggest, a spreadsheet da, 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 that has some of the things I just described, because you have to organize it like you did for sales because you were a sales guy, right? You're still a sales guy. And, and I'm, I have a sales background, so I know exactly what that should look like. And he, he, this young man said, I have to do all of that just to prove to the court. <laughs> I was like, bit my, I bit my tongue and I said, no, that's not the real reason. The real reason is if you do all the things you should be doing within two weeks, you will not be able to remember who you contacted, what the results were, what the follow-up is, and all that effort will go into the wind and it will do you no good. This is a building process. You're sowing seeds and continually nurturing them so that you do get to be hired. And this is what it takes. So don't think you can remember all of this because if you do it right, you won't unless you have good records. Right, right. So we look at that. I will so, tell you, though, most people don't keep very good records. Oh, I'm, I'm, I, I, <laughs> I'm a spreadsheet uh, junkie, so I was just yeah. thinking, well, everyone must do that. <laughs> no, they don't. I'm telling you, they really don't. Calming the chaos of divorce begins with quieting your mind and getting clear on what you want and how to get it. That's why we created the Divorce Survival Kit. It's an easy-to-digest guide with five essential tips that help transform your suffering into valuable insights and your confusion into effective action. So go to DivorceRecoveryLifeline.com and grab your Divorce Survival Kit today. So, you know, I know we're talking about the the two different scenarios as you go along. Uh, I'm curious... Uh, if you, if somebody, let's take a couple of different scenarios. So, so you're being hired because, um, uh, a, the, the non-moneyed spouse thinks that their, um, their husband or wife, uh, isn't earning what they could earn or, yeah, let's, let's take that. Like in that scenario, how did, like, I heard everything you just said, but how do you plug in, how do you, how do you unearth whether or not that's true or not? Well, um, there's a couple of different ways. First of all, I keep track of a lot of things going on in the economy at all times. I mean, that's my job. So sometimes I just know instinctively that there is a, that there could be a good reason here why it's not happening. The other thing I do is we have certain salary surveys that we look at that are validated and reliable um, that we will refer to as well. And I will also seek out counseling or consult with different recruiters that I know or people I know in the industry. I'm a very uh, wide networker, so I know people in different areas and I know I can pick up the phone and say, what do you think? Um, and it's a little harder on that when someone is out of work, but not that bad. And so I, I, compile, I compile all of that together. I sift it in my brain. And I also look at the economic conditions and what jobs perhaps are suffering more than others. And then so, I'll come that out. I can come to some determination. So if somebody's been making like a significant income and then within a year of, you know, getting into the divorce, uh, it changes. There could be very good explainable reasons why that that um, 
that income is dialed down and then there, but that's the kind of stuff that I'm hearing you could, you could pretty much figure out. Within reason. Yes, I think think I can. And it's also, listen, I also get people who are absolutely convinced that there is shenanigans going on here and that it can't possibly be like this. And that spouse is hiding something. Right. And while I can't get into that, I can look at people in comparable positions, how they got there, what the effort was, etc. A, a, a fun story, not so fun. So one of my earlier cases a number of years ago was a guy in the financial markets. He lost his job. He was probably making, I don't know, six, seven fifty, something like 750000 Good money back then. Still is. And... Um, his wife was very anxious when he lost his job that he wasn't doing anything. He goes to Starbucks and he sits there. Well, he sits there because he's on his cell phone and he's meeting people at Starbucks in order to network. She thought that he should minimally be taking something significantly lower so that he should still be working. Um, I met with him. He was adamant that he was not ready to do that yet. And I suggested maybe now is at the, not the time, but when would he consider it? Not for a while. So I indicated that in my report. I still thought he could make, say, four or five. And son of a gun, he held out and he landed up making almost what he, in the job offer he got was very close to what he expected. I was wrong. Okay. But he knew what he was doing. But there's all that emotion that comes into play here. The lack of trust is huge during this process. And sometimes that's where someone who's more objective like me um, can be useful. Because remember, as if this goes to trial and I have a report out there, well, it's for settlement purposes. The ultimate is if it does have to go to trial, how will it be defended? And will it be objective? So that's why in my retainer agreement, one of the first lines is I'm here to provide an objective assessment and I am not an advocate for either party. Because if I were, the courts would look at me with much less credibility and importance. Yeah. And And I I, I watch that. I think that that's such a good point. And for those of you listening in, it's, you know, it's, we are always talking to our clients about the stories that they create in their minds, right? And and oh, you yeah. put on a lens of fear or uncertainty or um, bitterness, judgment, you know, unforgiveness, all of those things. And that lens really skews the way that you're looking at what's going on, at the other person, at the circumstances. And what I love about what you're saying, Rona, is... Uh, much like we come in to help clean that lens and and shift them to to some more clarity, you're coming in as this um, objective individual. And so with such a depth of uh, research and exploration that um, that one would hope that that would be comforting, regardless of what the outcome is. It's like now you know what's real. And that's what I'm hearing is that what you're bringing to the table is uh, what's real in the circumstance that you're looking at. I'm glad you said real, because one of the things I find that a lot of these individuals who are evaluated want is they want to be heard. Okay, it's very important. So they want to tell their side. And sometimes there's a lot of stories that they're associating with it, a lot of um, excuses, lack of accountability about whatever is going on, a lot of blaming, okay? Unfortunately, divorce breeds that like like, like little rabbits. Yes. Um, how, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, it's not helpful when you're coming to, through this process and you have to make decisions. The blaming needs to, to go away. So it's interesting you should say that because one of the things that does happen and one of the reasons my, my interviews tend to be longer than some of my compatriots is because I have a counseling background. And one of the things I know is that people 
will share a lot of stuff. And I could cut them right off and say that it's nothing to do with what we're talking about. I'm so sorry. But sometimes it's better just to let them have some space. You know, they feel better. I mean, one of the things that happens, this is before COVID, right? I would meet more people um, in a conference room, right? And I, I, I learned to carry my own tissues because they always happened. And it was men and women, equally so, getting embarrassed, apologizing. I go, oh, everybody does this. Here's your tissue. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. You know, feel free. This is a difficult process. I get that this is one of the most painful things you could possibly be going through. So much mixed up in it, and I understand. And that's part of what they want to hear, too. Um, But I can really also deliver some tough love with a velvet fist, a velvet glove, rather. Um, Sometimes you just have to hear what it is, and there's not much we can do about that. You know, and I would imagine that um, there's got to be a portion of the people that you work with. Like, as I'm listening to you, if I was someone who uh, needed, maybe wanted to go back into the workforce, how wonderful to have someone like you who has such a depth of understanding, who does all this research and says, well, you can, Karen. You're going to need a couple of years of schooling. These are the areas that would be best given your skills and talents and everything that you told me. And you probably could earn somewhere between, like, like to lay that out to me sounds like such a gift amidst so much uncertainty and fear. There is so much uncertainty and fear on that. And now if they need more extensive work or they really have no idea where they want to go, it's just it's a fresh start and it's really fresh in their minds. I have a cadre of fully vetted career advisors that I trust and know do good work. And I will make those introductions generally with more than at least two so that they can have a choice about who really fits them. Um, And that's incredibly valuable. Sometimes I find out that a lot of the fears are this incredible fear about money that they're going to be left destitute. That is going to be, yes. Um, that it's going to be an unalterable, awful change in their lives, and they can't envision giving up certain things. Of course, as you and I both know, the further away we get from some of that, the less important it becomes. Uh, But you only know what you know. So on occasion, it's that um, they haven't talked to their lawyer about that, and they really need financial advisement, okay? Some lawyers are very good at that and introducing that early, But sometimes I had one case where someone was being advised by an investment advisor, not a holistic financial planner. That's what she needed. She was afraid about how you budget for this stuff and and walk me through this. And what are the other things I need to consider and how am I going to plan that? Someone who manages your investments doesn't necessarily do that. So... That was good because I have three or four people that I, well, more actually, that I could say, why don't you shop around, talk to somebody that you will eventually feel the most comfortable with. And I guarantee you it's going to make a dramatic difference in how you approach this. Absolutely. And I would say this very, you know, as a coach and the coaches on our team, we we generally don't tell, we ask. Like that's our job. Our job is to ask questions and help our clients find the answers. But when it comes to finances, whether you have a very little or millions and millions and millions, there's just so much fear around the divorce and what that's going to do to your financial reality. And so the one tell we always say is get yourself a financial planner, you know, a certified divorce financial analyst, get someone on your team who knows and is wise, because to your point, it has that ripple effect. It's not just the finances. It's, it's how you think about potentially going back into a career. If you're not worried about the finances, right. Then, Mm -hmm or worried that you're going to be like, people have these really like worst case scenarios. Like I'm going to, I'm going to be near homeless when it's the most unrealistic thing ever, or I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be, you know, living hand to mouth when like that's never, ever going to happen. And so I think it's really important that they get a handle on that so that they have some solid ground to stand on. 
You're absolutely correct. And I remember one attorney telling me about this client. I, I didn't do any work with her, but she was going to come into like $7 million. Even in New York City, that's still a lot of money. And I remember she still had the bag lady mentality that it could yes. evaporate at any moment. Um, so there's all that stuff wrapped up in this. And in addition, you know, if you've been out of the market for a while and you job market, I should say, and you've been pretty much focused on other things, specifically your family or maybe health issues that have come about that are now, you know, resolved. The other thing that happens is I'll have someone come in and goes, well, who's going to hire me? I'm 45 years old, <laughs> right? Okay. So I don't mean to chuckle on that one, but you look fabulous. You have a terrific presentation. You've got great credentials. It's a question of how we're going to reposition it. But 45, that's still quite competitive and desirable because there's things you've learned at 45 and you still look young and and act young and vibrant. Um, Or maybe you don't, but you can, you know, and you can present yourself that way with the wisdom that, frankly, a 28-year-old is still waiting to get, okay? You can only get so much of that by living, and you know, I was I was talking to a client last week, and her um, and she was describing everything she did while she was raising her children. So mm-hmm. you know, her her spouse was has his own business; he made good money, um, and the amount of um, balls that she was always juggling, and what she was volunteering, and then she was basically saying exactly like Karen, I've I've got nothing. I mean, I've been home raising kids, and it's like. Oh, actually, I ran that organization and I organized that event and 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 I led that and 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 all of a sudden I said, "Do you hear yourself? Do you hear? You know, because you weren't getting paid to do all of these things doesn't mean you don't have a lot of value to bring to the market." But I think that there's an understandable fear um, that. Um, and and insecurity when you've been out of the job market for a while. Insecurity. Yeah. Insecurity is huge. And a lot of those pushbacks I get, you know, are, I'm so afraid to go out there and get rejected. And what am I going to say? And how am I going to do it? And that's where I always, always suggest they work with a professional career advisor for not a long period of time, but between people working with people like you, and then taking that to her career advisor for a specific implementation plan, follow-up, and accountability partner to make sure it's getting done. That's where the real change comes through. And it's, it's, um, it's giving people, um, acknowledging their strengths, owning them, uh, understanding where they, they can still make it better, taking it to someone who can help create that plan, making it happen, and... And it, it goes from there. I think the other thing is, I don't usually say this to people, but it's a little thing I wish I could play in their heads. You're going through a divorce. It's one of the most, the great, one of the biggest upheavals in your life. It's hard to think straight right now. Oftentimes I tell them when we talk about what they could be doing, I know you're not ready to do that right now. Okay. You're in the middle of everything, but this will come to a close and you will be making plans. And so I just want you to be aware of that. But the other piece to it is that they're so afraid of taking that next step. And the one thing I've often said is this is divorce, but you know, it could have been that the spouse was in a very serious accident and your life went through a very similar, um, different, but similar change of circumstances. And now you have to, and now you do need to go back to work and you have to figure it out. So then it becomes at that point in your life, not if, but how. How? Nice. And if you can take that into this now, like you're pushing back because there's a lot of stuff going on that you're not ready to process. But once you do, that's what it is. And if you do have some idea about that and you start this process early enough during the divorce process, um, you'll be in a much better place going on the other side. So two last points I'd like to make. One is 
if you do get some type of maintenance or alimony, whatever we want to call it, that's your time to get back on your feet. It's not your time to keep your old lifestyle and be supported doing it because the longer you wait, the older you get, the more challenging it is to get the kind of work you think you want. And you've kind of wasted all of that time. This is your time to wrap around your future. And that's what you should be doing with it. And that is really one of the biggest points I, I, I do need to point out to people because if they expect that they wasted that or dissipated that, that advantage and they expect to go back to court and say, you know, I'm just not quite ready, Your Honor, it will not be positively received. They will lose. The other thing that we've seen here in the Northeast in particular is that the length of support and the amount has changed. There really is an expectation on the part of the judges now that the lesser moneyed spouse or unmoneyed spouse will return to work in some way. And um, one needs to be aware of that. And the other part is many people don't make an effort to look for work or do anything because they think it will harm their financial settlement. I'm so glad you said that. That was going to be my question. I've heard that so often. Can you just give us your opinion on that? Absolutely. And I just had a conversation with an attorney about this in Connecticut, talking about how this comes up over and over again. And here's what happens. Whatever you think that you're going to make, and it can't even pay barely for the cost of childcare and all of that. Yeah, that's true. But it's an investment in your future. And the money part of it will be part of the settlement. So it's not necessarily only coming out of your pocket. But you've got to understand that that is your opportunity to start getting, to start getting on track. The other thing is, is that courts will look generally, judges will look more positively and your spouse as well, if you at least make an effort to get started. Instead of digging your heels into the ground and saying, I'm not doing anything until I know what's happening. It may not even be much of a job, maybe part-time. It may only be a stepping stone to thinking about, okay, but I want to go back to school too. How am I going to work that out? But I'm willing to do the work. It will never affect your, your settlement the way you think it is. It just doesn't. And the longer you postpone it, the more at a disadvantage you will be when your time is done with whatever support you're getting. And I would imagine uh, that going back to work and, and getting that job, that there's a certain amount of empowerment in there and confidence building that comes along with that. Like if you trust that, it, this is my unfolding path and this is my, my baby step. And so, like you said, whether it's part-time, what, to, to move in that direction, to, um, to feel productive in the workforce again, to get excited about what could be coming next can only empower you and catapult you into your next chapter of life. And the more we feel independent in that way, the better we feel about ourselves usually. For sure. And here's the other thing I tell them. I get a lot of um, objections about all the time that they must spend on taking their kid to different activities, that they're solely responsible, that this is a really important part of that they don't want to miss, etc. But one of the things I point out to them is when your kids go, you know, see you go back to work. I remember when my mother went back to work. Right. And yeah, little things happen. She did more money probably than I would have expected to, I would have done for my kid. But, you know, the dinner was practically, you know, prepared to be put in the oven. You came home from school. You know what your responsibility was. Um, I, could car, I could take my kid sister to wherever she needed to be when I got my license. We were, we felt more independent. We felt independent about, okay, we have to um, help out with the laundry. You know, it can't all fall on one person. Um, uh, she would drop, you know, maybe she'll drop us off at the supermarket so that she can, God willing, get her hair done and be the professional for her job. You know, whatever it was, I said, you know, you'd be surprised at how your children will later, they will whine. 
They will push back. They will be annoyed. Okay. But understand that when they go off to college or whatever their next step is, they'll be much better prepared. They'll feel positive about um, how independent they become, how they know how to operate a washing machine, for example, um, that you don't put in a wool sweater, for example, um, <laughs> all those kinds of things. Um, and, and some of them, you find that they enjoy doing things you would have never imagined. I've had people tell me that their children like to cook, you know, yep. um, and things of that nature. So your role has been so wrapped up in the nurturing and the taking care of, you forget that they can also learn how to nurture themselves. And you know what? They're proud of you. They are yeah. proud. And, and what I hear you saying is like, you know, it's it's such a valuable thing to stop and challenge um, beliefs of ours that are limiting beliefs. And we can have yeah. limiting beliefs about what we can do. But to your point, we can also have limiting beliefs about what our children are capable of. And when we invite them into another level of responsibility or maturity, um, and we just have some thick skin for the pushback that happens in the moment. Uh, I was just on the phone with my son. He's 24. He's out in Seattle now. And yeah, single mom left with like in the negative. And he said, you know what? I complained so much, but at 16, you got me on the Long Island Railroad going into Hunter's Point to work in a factory because I wanted a car at 17. And he's like, now I look at my tenacity and my ability to get jobs compared to my friends who were kind of, he said, home and coddled. And I am so glad that that was my experience. And I was like, that was such a beautiful thing to hear. And it speaks to exactly what you were just saying. You're absolutely correct. And my daughter used to say the same thing, you know. Um, I remember she wanted to do this project. It was a Sweet 16 party. And, you know, I wasn't prepared to do it. She came up with a budget, okay, on a spreadsheet to show us how we could still work with it and all this stuff. It was really a pleasure to see that accountability and learning take place. So that is a lot of it. And then the other thing is when you're a stay-at-home parent, that's your world. And it's hard to see beyond that. But one of the things I do point out to them is that, you know, your youngest is 10 or 12 and you've got about six years left and it goes like that. Yep. I know you can't see beyond it right now, but I'm telling you, it goes by in a flash. Raising your child goes by in a flash. When you think about the lifespan that we now have, your child raising years are a smaller and smaller part of that. And you have an opportunity to create a whole new role for yourself if you allow it. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rhonda. This has been incredibly informative. And for those of you listening, um, you know, listen again, take notes. Uh, if this is something that you need and you have some resistance Notice your resistance and look for the silver lining because as Rona's describing all that she does and the people that folks like her can connect you to, uh, if your path is that you have to go back to work, um, there's a lot of positives in, uh, in hiring an employability expert and getting that guidance and getting that clarity. How can our listeners find you if they're interested? So if you just search my name, Rona Wexler in employability, I will come right up. But my website is www.theemployabilityexpert.com. And I, you know, and my phone number is also there. So please get in touch. Happy to and talk. And we'll have all of Rona's uh, contact information in the show notes for you as well, so you can look there. And Rona, thank you so much. Oh, it was such a pleasure. This was a real, a real honor to be able to share this with you and your listeners. Thank you. Thank you. And stay tuned. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode of the High Net Worth Divorce Playbook. Thanks for joining us on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. I hope you found guidance and encouragement to help you along your journey. 
If you like my podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also visit us at jbddivorcesupport.com, where our team of coaches support both men and women through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon. At Journey Beyond Divorce, we know that sometimes the most powerful support we can offer is to help you process the storm of emotions you're experiencing and gently challenge the beliefs that are keeping you stuck. The way Karen delivers her program is that she validates the feelings, the emotions, the ups, the downs. She hones in on the specifics that really talk to that particular person when they're going through this crazy emotional time. Let us be a beacon in the midst of this crazy emotional time. Book a free lifeline call with us to help lift the fog and begin practicing new ways of thinking, being, and doing that better support you as you journey through and beyond divorce. Our gift to you is taking that first step with you on your free Rapid Relief Lifeline call, where we help you navigate the emotional and logistical turbulence of separation and divorce. Visit rapidreliefcall.com to book your call.